Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark 13, verses 32 to 37, is what we'll be looking at together today. Mark 13, verses 32 to 37. And I'll say this briefly as you're turning there. I love pastoring this church, and you guys are wonderful. I was just thinking this weekend about, um, about how much I love being here, and I don't want to be anywhere else in the world. Uh, this is just a great place, great people. And one of the things that I love the most about you all is your love for the Word. Even these harder portions of Scripture that we've been in the last few weeks. You all have been in there with it, understanding these things, applying them, so it makes it a joy for me to preach uh, in that type of context. With that being said, let's look again at the final passage of this Olivet Discourse that we've been studying I'll begin reading at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Travel with me back in your minds to New England in the 1840s where well-meaning Baptist preacher named Henry Miller became convinced of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. In fact, he didn't just believe that Jesus could come soon. Miller believed that he would come soon. Even better, not only that he would come soon, but that he would in fact come sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Armed with some mathematical equations, mounds of analyzed data, and divine confirmation from a comet seen streaking across the sky, his belief spread like wildfire in that community. Yet, March 21st, 1843 came, And March 21st, 1844 went, and Jesus had not yet returned. After a couple more failed prophecies, the Millerites, as they became known, were gravely disappointed. And you would have thought for sure that their movement had come to a total end. And it did. Until one of their members... Samuel Snow, to be exact, presented a final revision to Miller's chronology setting the official date of Jesus' return for October the 22nd, 1844. And believe it or not, against all hope, this date caught like wildfire. The movement was invigorated in a way that it had never been before. 
And as the fateful day approached, contemporary sources reported, and I quote, fields were left unharvested, shops were closed, people quit their jobs, paid their debts, and freely gave away their possessions with no thought of repayment. And on the predicted night, thousands of Millerites from across the nation gathered in churches and on hilltops some reportedly wearing white ascension robes in anticipation of meeting their Savior, and their frenzy reached a fever pitch. But when the sun rose on the morning of October 23rd, the world had not ended. And this final crushing blow became known in history as the Great Disappointment. Liberals and atheists still look back to this day as proof positive that the imminent return of Jesus Christ is nothing more than a farce. I can only imagine, and so could you, how those people felt that day. The joy, the excitement, the disappointment. We actually have a record from one of these people's diaries that I would like to read to you at this time. See if you could empathize with the way that he felt. He says, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never expected before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. And I mused in my own heart saying, My Advent experience has been the richest and brightest of all my Christian experiences. And if this had proved a failure, what was the rest of my Christian experience worth? Has the Bible proved a failure? Is there no God? No heaven? No golden home city? No paradise? Is all this but a cunningly devised fable? Is there no reality to our fondest hope and expectation of these things? Does your heart not break for these well-meaning but disillusioned anticipators of Jesus' return? Can you imagine their, their joy and then their dejection? Of course we can imagine their disappointment. At the same time, though, we understand that this is a problem that has plagued the church through the centuries. It's a simple act. It doesn't take much. All it is is setting a date. Saying with something that you saw in the book of Daniel or something that you knew about the nation of Israel that Jesus is going to come back and He's going to do it at this particular time and we've seen this error happen over and over and over again. I'll give you a few more examples of that later in the message. But that's one problem, date setting. One of the things when it comes to our approach to the return of Jesus Christ can be one of the problems that many believers suffer from is gullibility. But, you know, I'll be honest, like knowing you And this church, I don't think anybody's struggling with gullibility. I don't think anybody in here is setting any dates. But we also have an equal problem when it comes to our approach to Jesus' second coming, and that is apathy. We arm ourselves against getting too excited because... We know how disappointed we would be if it didn't happen. So therefore, I think there's a tendency 
for us not to, to be overly anticipatory about the second return of Jesus, but to sometimes be just a little too laid back about it. In light of the repeated stories, we, we listen and we hear with skepticism, and we live our lives as if Jesus is not coming back, but we do hold in our minds the hypothetical possibility that it could happen. For us, it seems like that's just the best way to live. You know, I'm just going to act like it's not going to happen, even though I'm safe, because I know theoretically that it could We don't sell our houses, quit our jobs. I haven't seen anybody wearing an ascension robe at any point around. We know better. We may not date set, but we regularly date skip. What I mean by that is we don't think uh, he's coming on this day, but we're pretty sure that he's not coming tomorrow. And we're pretty confident that he's not going to come the day after that or this, this month. And so, we'll see from this text that I think both responses, gullibility and apathy, are condemned by our Lord. All these details about the last days and insights regarding the end from our previous two studies in Mark have led us to this point. How should we live? What are we supposed to do with this? And as I've been saying over and over again throughout this discourse, Jesus here is being intensely pastoral and intensely practical. You'll remember that Jesus' disciples' question is what sparked off this whole conversation. Jesus is walking out of the temple complex, beautifully adorned and decorated, and they comment on how great of a building it is. And he simply responds, the day will come when not one stone will be left on top of another. This throws them into a panic. Because for them, the existence of the temple was the safeguard of their future as a nation and a promised people. So if the temple is going to be destroyed, that means that the world must be coming to an end. And as we read Matthew and Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, we understand even more readily that these disciples not only were asking about the destruction of the temple, but they're asking about everything that surrounds that, what they perceive to be the end of time. And they had two questions in particular, which frame the outline for this discourse. The first question was, when are these things going to take place? The second question was, what are the signs associated with your coming? Now, he hasn't answered the first question yet, but he has answered the second. We've seen in verses 5 through 31, signs and non-signs of his return. But now... Here in verses 32 to 37, we finally get Jesus' answer to the first question. Remember, the first question is, when will you return? They think that they need to know the timing if they're going to be prepared for his return. And their answer, or excuse me, their concern, and Jesus' answer don't really line up. You could see, even as we read the text today, that Jesus doesn't give them an answer at all, but he's still preparing them for what they ultimately need to know in regard to preparing for his return. Their concern is our concern, and therefore Jesus' answer is applicable to us. They want to know, how can we be prepared for the end? They think that that will come from knowing the exact date. But Jesus has more in mind than that. 
He's going to teach them how they're supposed to live in light of His return. He's going to prepare them. And He does this through two simple props or ideas that ensure that His followers will be ready for His return. Two props. I'm going to do something different today. This will frustrate uh, the mess out of some of you folks who like to take notes. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the point before I say it. I think it's pretty plain. I'm actually just going to teach the passage, and don't worry, I'll come along and let you fill in your blank later. (laughs) But see if you can figure out these two props that ready us or prepare us for the return of Jesus as we're looking at them in the text today. What is the first way Jesus prompts us to be ready for his return? You see the answer in verses 32 to 33. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. What's this about? Well, Jesus' teaching here emphasizes the unknowability of the day of the Lord, which sets up His call for them to be ready. It's Their ignorance is actually, in fact, what they need the most. What day or hour is He speaking about here? Clearly, He's referring back to the moment that Jesus returns to the earth. No matter how you may put your Bible together about the last days, we can all agree that Jesus' return is a kickoff for the eschatological age. It's something that we all must be ready for at all times. I've already explained to you how I put the Bible together and how I think that there would actually be a pre-tribulational rapture before this day of the Lord that's discussed here at this point. But I don't care about your background. Whether you are pre-trib or uh, amillennial, it doesn't matter. We all are called to be ready for this day. We're all called to perpetually be prepared for this return. And the means by which we are prepared is our ignorance. (laughs) It's the very fact that we don't know is what Jesus wants to capitalize upon and prepare to use to prepare us for. Notice the progression here. He's going to make it exceedingly clear. He says... No one knows, and then notice, he says, the angels in heaven don't know, and then he says, surprisingly, the Son doesn't even know. Now, when we say no one, I want you to know that this includes your favorite Christian author, speaker, or preacher. (laughs) No one means no one. No one knows. But notice how he moves from the realm of the natural world to the supernatural world. And not even people on earth, but even people above the earth, the angels, the ones with constant access to the throne of God, the one who always wait before Him, the ones who are listening for His commands, the ones who Isaiah 6 says that they hover around His throne, the ones Matthew 18 tells us are in intimate communion with God, the ones that will be the agents of judgment at the second coming and who will gather believers who survive the tribulation. These same angels, they don't know. They don't set a date. And now be prepared to be blown away. Don't worry, I'll explain it. But even the Son and His humanity didn't know. And His argument is, if these people don't know, how can anyone ever know? How could anyone ever set a date? Now in regard to this comment about Jesus' ignorance of the second coming, Some of you may be thinking, 
How could Jesus be fully God if He didn't know this? Well, I would only consider you to answer this question the same way you would answer any other question about Jesus' limitations. He got hungry. But nobody questions His divinity there. He got sleepy. But no one ever questions His divinity there. And then when you read ahead to Mark 15, 37, you see that He died. It was all part of the plan of God. We must not allow Jesus' divinity to swallow up His humanity. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 make it very clear that Jesus fully entered into the human experience. So, in some cases, He voluntarily limited His divine power. To use the fancy theological term, He forfeited His personal prerogatives of deity. It doesn't mean that He wasn't divine. It doesn't mean that He disposed Himself of His attributes. It just means that He didn't always use them. And in this case, to enter fully into the human experience, He chose to not know about the second coming. But let's keep it back to the main point. If no one in this world, or the supernatural world, or even the, Jesus the Son Himself know when the exact day is, you cannot know either. And it blows my mind that people will still continue to set dates for the second return of Jesus. And it's mostly cults, by the way. Beware. I mean, it started back in 90 A.D. with Clement I. He was the first one to set a date for the return of Jesus. Then the Montanists in the 2nd century did the same. And you fast forward all the way to the 19th century when the Millerites were doing their thing, and you find the birth of a whole bunch of cult groups that got a movement. I mean, like the way they built the thing was on date setting. You ever wonder where Seventh-day Adventists come from? It was because Ellen G. White said that the Lord would come in 1850. And she had some convincing charts, obviously, as well, and gained a following. Didn't happen in 1850. Then she tried again for 1856 and struck out on that one, too. But the movement's still around. Jehovah's Witnesses did the same thing. They said that the Lord would come in 1914, 1915, 1918, 1920, 1925, 1941, and 1975, and 1990. And I think there's another date out there. Listen, if you're a part of that kind of movement, get out of that. If, if, if somebody could be so wrong so often with something so big, why would anyone tolerate that or listen to that? You know they use these things to pad their stats. There was actually some research done on the Jehovah's Witness in particular to see the number of baptisms that increased in the 70s because of the impending date of 1975. Compared to the decade before, they had tripled in the number of baptisms. Until 1976, in which baptisms plummeted to an all-time low. Listen, if we wanted to pack out this church, I'm sure I could make up some Bible verses and do some math equations, and we could go tell some gullible people out there that Jesus is coming back next week. But what's it going to look like for me and for this church when next Monday comes? Anybody can do this. And Jesus is saying, don't let it happen. That's why I'm just blown away. I, I want you to be blown away. If you know people who are involved in these movements, you should be amazed. Because this is a cornerstone for much of their theology. The Mormons aren't excluded, by the way. They also predicted, Joseph Smith did, that the Lord would come in 1832, 1890, 1891. And I think they've given up of late. 
So my point here is that we would just, I wish we would just embrace our ignorance and be ready always. That's the point. Just go ahead and acknowledge that no matter how much you know your Bible, no matter what signs you see in the sky, no matter what happens with the nation of Israel, we don't know. And when you don't know, you're going to live like you're supposed to. That is your prompt for living for the end. Note takers, there's your fill in the blank. Awareness of our ignorance prompts us to be prepared for the end. An awareness of our ignorance. The eschatological point of no return could happen at any time. This is why Paul equates the day of the Lord with a thief in the night in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Have any of you ever had a thief call your home and tell you they were coming ahead of time? Never happened at our house. We were broken into three times when I was a kid. That would be a, a nice and decent and polite thing to do. Could you imagine how the conversation would go? Hey, just wanted to check in and make sure that uh, next Friday night around 2 a.m. would be okay with you. If you wouldn't mind chaining up the dog, that'd be really convenient. And just leave that back door unlocked. We'll take care of everything for you. It just doesn't happen that way. We all know that the, the analogy of a thief requires us to be prepared. The point of the thief analogy and the point of these verses is that it's unannounced, it's unscheduled, it's unexpected. And you know what you do with that? You prepare. You prepare all the time. Just as an awareness of our ignorance concerning thieves leads us to lock doors and install security systems and to get a dog or to buy a gun or to pay ridiculous amounts of money to an HOA fee that sits a guy at a guard shack if you live in those neighborhoods. I'm not bitter. Just as your ignorance leads you to prepare in very concrete ways, Jesus is saying, hey, you want to be ready? Just go ahead and accept the fact you don't know. And when you realize that you don't know, you will always be ready. You will do the concrete things, the tangible things, the practical things that need to be done in preparation for his return. Just by acknowledging you don't know. Our ignorance of the end is actually our impetus for the end. Not knowing doesn't harm us, but it actually helps us. So the question is, are you ready? Now, let me give you this analogy. Maybe this is something you can meditate on this week. If your spiritual house were as prepared as your physical house, how well would you sleep at night? So first, we see that an awareness of our ignorance prompts us to readiness for his return. But there's a second prompt. It's verses 34 to 37. And again, think with me. I'm not going to give it to you. Look at these verses. Let's read them and, and see what the second way is in which Jesus prompts us to be ready for his return. Starting at verse 34. It is like a man on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. And commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, I love this. Jesus uses an illustration 
of a traveling estate owner who has entrusted ongoing responsibility to his slaves to prompt them to be ready. I love the teaching of Jesus. It's just so clear. It's so helpful. He's always moving back and forth from illustration, concrete pictures of something, right into application. And most of us are visual learners, and this is extremely helpful. Now, you may have a hard time picturing somebody like just leaving all of their stuff to some slaves. I know that's a little bit of distance for us time-wise, but it was a familiar image for the people of the day. I mean, you think about Jesus' parables. There's at least six of them that deal with this same scenario. Wealthy guy leaves slaves in charge while he goes on a business trip, and always the punchline of the parable, he comes back. They were used to this. In those days, long business journeys were inevitable as they are today. There were no airplanes, no trains, no taxi cabs, no rental cars. And as a result, a business trip to another nation or a distant city might mean weeks of travel at a time. No phones. So what would the householder or business owner do? Most people worked out of their own homes. How would he take care of the things that needed to be taken care of while he was gone? Well, he would give the responsibilities of his estate to trusted slaves. That's the word that's in the text, by the way. It's not servants. These aren't just employees. These are people who he owns. They are slaves. They live in his household. And don't think antebellum slavery in the South. I think many times you hear the word slavery, and you just immediately think about the last movie you saw on the subject and think of something very demeaning and derogatory. In many cases, slavery in the first century context, was actually a protective mechanism for some people because they were better off under the care of a curios, of a lord, of an estate owner, than they ever would have been by themselves. Were there abuses? Yes. Should have been done? Probably not. But I don't want you to think anytime you see the word slave in the Bible that it has a negative connotation because on several different occasions, the Bible calls us his slaves. So you better learn to recognize that. He's the master. We're the servants. We're the slaves. That's exactly how this parable works. Notice when you read through it, it's very short. It drips with responsibility. Several slaves are placed, and I love the ESV word here, in charge of certain things. You know what that word means. In charge. They're endowed with responsibility and with that responsibility comes authority and with that authority comes accountability you know how this works so as he's telling the story you can just feel the weight of these slaves being entrusted with their master's responsibilities and his temporary absence and their job as slaves is to advance and protect the owner's interests until his return That's what a slave does in this situation. He advances and protects the owner's interest until his return. But as the story continues, it's not just slaves taking on certain jobs, but he zeroes in on a particular responsibility that he would have left in that culture, and that is the doorkeeper. Or some translations call it the porter. What's the doorkeeper? What's the porter? Well, in larger estates, the doorkeeper served as a guard stationed at the entrance, especially as night. Think of like a security guard. The role was a prominent one as this individual held the master's keys, kept out on wanted visitors, and checked the other slaves leaving the premises, making sure that they didn't steal anything. And kind of a side responsibility, and the most important one to note here, if the master came back, it was this guy's job to let him back in. There was no deadbolt key <laughs> 
he had to lift the bar from behind the gates and let the guy in. He, he wanted to be on post and ready for the master's return. His job was very simple. It was to be on the alert. And with these general responsibilities delegated and the specific responsibility of the doorkeeper listed, you would think that Jesus would continue to tell a story, but something interesting happens in the narrative. He cuts it off and immediately jumps to the application. He interrupts it and he just says, be on the alert. Be always ready for the owner's owner's arrival. Why? He's already told them everything they need to know. Here it is. You've been entrusted with responsibility and you don't know when he's returning. That's good motivation. That'll teach you to be prepared. Somebody leaves you in charge of something. They say, I'm going to come back. I don't know when. Well, you understand. You embrace the responsibility and then you get on with your work. And notice how he's focusing on this porter. He really likes that job because he goes on to talk about the evening and the midnight and when the rooster crows and the morning. Just a historical insight here that may help you. These are the four divisions of the Roman watch at night. So the Romans had a day and a night. For them, night was from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And there were four subcategories of that, four watches. The first was from 6 to 9, and that was evening. And then the next was from 9 to 12, that was up to midnight. When the rooster crows, that was considered 12 to 3, and then morning was 3 to 6. And so it's, it's fascinating to me that he's zeroing in on this because the temptation to sleep, the temptation to abdicate your responsibility would be the greatest in these moments, at these times. Now, as is in many of Jesus' parables, there is an unexpected twist. It may not seem like a big deal to you, But there is something here that the first century reader would have called on to pretty easily. And that is the fact that Jesus actually implies that the owner would come at night. People didn't travel at night in the ancient Near East. They knew how to time their stuff so that they would be there in the middle of the day. We had a couple families go up to a wedding this weekend in Wisconsin. They made it back at midnight last night, and I think they made it to their homes at 2 p.m. You're used to that. You know what that's like. Not then. So the fact that the owner would actually come at night, this is just kind of surprising, but that's the point. (laughs) Jesus is trying to tell them, even at the most unexpected time, that's the time that you need to be on guard and ready. At the very time where you think you can hit the spiritual snooze button, at the very time that you think you could do some date skipping, may be the time that he will actually come back. Be ready for that. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be for the porter to be caught sleeping or for Jesus' followers to be caught unprepared? Have you ever had that happen, by the way? you ever been in that moment? Maybe in class? I can think back to that very concretely. I know what it's like to fall asleep in class and have the teacher call on you to embarrass you and ask you a question. Now, I don't think I've ever had it happen at work, but I imagine that it's happened with somebody in here at some point. I'm sure you could tell us a story later. I have had this happen in a group conversation with several people being tired and falling asleep in the middle of the conversation. <laughs> There's kind of a social contract that you sign that says, hey, I'll be engaged and awake, <laughs> and it's really rude to fall asleep. That's why now it gets to be like too late at my house. I just tell everybody, 
All right, guys, let's pray. It's time for us to go to bed, and we end that thing. It's embarrassing to fall asleep, and that's exactly what Jesus wants us to think about. Clearly, though, the point of all of this, whether it be the porter or whether it be the individual slaves, is that the acceptance of responsibility prompts us to live ready for our Lord's return. I keep using that word on purpose, responsibility. Responsibility. You understand what I mean by that, right? Like, there's a huge difference between being assigned a task and given a responsibility. Some examples. For those of you who still live at home, if if your dad tells you to pull the weeds, that's one thing. But it's something else to be responsible for the health and beauty of the yard. Another one. Again, think back to your teenage years. Uh, If... If your mother tells you to give your sister her pacifier because she's crying, that's a task. But if your parents leave you responsible for your sister while they go out on a date, that's a different thing altogether. Or for those of you who have ever taught, you know what it's like to come in and fill in for someone and take their lesson plan. But it's something totally different to be responsible for the education of a class for an entire year. You can all think back to moments of responsibility and authority and the accountability that came with that. Maybe it was when you first stepped into management at a job. Or maybe it was when you first held that little baby in your arms. Or maybe it was the first time you ever landed a major contract. Or maybe it was that first class of students that you saw. You know what it's like to feel the weight. And Jesus uses this parable because He wants you and He wants me to feel the weight of being in charge of something while He's gone, knowing that He will hold us accountable for it when He gets back. Which leads us to our second prompt. That is an acceptance of our responsibility. It's not just an awareness of our ignorance. Certainly that prompts us into action. But an acceptance of our responsibility. He wants you to know that you have something to be doing. And this is so practical and so helpful. When we feel the weight of responsibility, we'll be ready. We'll figure it out. That's the beautiful thing about entrusting responsibility stuff. You don't micromanage. They figure it out. I don't have to tell you a hundred ways you can be practically ready for Jesus this week. But if I tell you that he's left you responsible for something and you better get it done, you're going to be held accountable for it. You will work hard to figure it out. This parable sets the appropriate parameters upon what it means to watch and stay awake for the Lord's return. And here's probably one of the most helpful things that I could give you. Waiting, watching for the Lord's return is not a passive thing. That's where the Millerites got it wrong. If you're ever tempted to think that the best thing to do to prepare for the Lord's return is to sell your house, give all your money away, and put on some special clothes, you missed the boat. This parable teaches something totally different. This is not a passive waiting. This is people with a job to do. Did you know, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul was writing to a group of people who thought that the day of the Lord was coming, and did you know what their problem was? Many of them quit their jobs, stopped working, And Paul has to correct them and say, no, keep working. If you're going to prepare for the day of the Lord, you're still going to work a job. You're still going to provide for your family. Watching out, staying alert, clearly doesn't mean quitting anything. So what does it mean? How do we do this? If this story teaches us anything, it is that we watch for Jesus' return by working until his return. That's very important. We watch for Jesus' return by working until His return. The watching happens by working. 
The watching happens by executing that which he's given us. If you're a true follower of Jesus, he has left entrusting you, his slave, with a particular responsibility. You're left here to advance the interest, his interest, in his absence. You have the authority to do it, and you will be held accountable for it. All of his followers. Now, here's the question, big one that's going to get really practical. You ready? What is it that he's left us to do? What are his interests that we are to be advancing? What has he given us the authority to do in his absence? If we're looking at the book of Mark so far, we already saw in just this same chapter, chapter 13, verse 10, that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He's already clarified the responsibility. That is the advance of the gospel message. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we're not going to turn there, but I encourage you to read that. And I want you to note something particular when you go back and read it. Note the tie between Jesus' authority, your responsibility, and then Jesus' authority. He ties those things together. It isn't just go and make disciples. It's on the basis of my authority, make disciples. And remember, you have my authority. Thus we are faithfully waiting when we are faithfully working, and we are faithfully working when we are faithfully witnessing to others about Him. Waiting, working, witnessing. So does this mean, in light of missions emphasis weekend coming up, that we all quit our jobs and we figure out how to get to China with Rob? Amen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I wouldn't answer no to that question, but I would say not necessarily. For some of you, that actually may be a good thing to do. But what we need to grasp first and foremost is that the Lord has entrusted you with particular tasks and talents and relationships and resources, and you are to use those to advance His purposes. You advance His agenda where you are by leveraging those time, talents, and treasure for the glory of His name and the advance of the gospel. Man, it seems like we just keep getting back to this, but this is Jesus' teaching. You know, John Wesley, the famous 18th century evangelist, was actually asked this question one time. As he made his way from one preaching engagement to another, the, the question was, if you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, they were trying to one-up him, if you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? Because his preaching was so convicting, it made people feel uncomfortable. They thought they turned the tables on him. His response, he took out his diary he read the list of engagements he had for the following day and said, these are the things I would do tomorrow if I knew the Lord was returning then. I love that settledness. And you know, I've already prayed for it this week for you all. I pray that you all would be able to look ahead to what you have on your calendar this week and be able with confidence before God say, you know what, this is exactly what I would do if Jesus was coming back next Monday. I think you can I think you can do that without moving to China, even though some of you probably should. How do we do that? How do we do this if we're not pastors or, or missionaries? We leverage our sphere of influence for the gospel. We were talking about this in our instruments class today. Phil was teaching and, um, and Mike, you brought up a really good question about what's our identity, and you talk Mike's busy man. Works a lot of hours in a week. 
And Phil did a good job at pointing us back to our primary responsibility. He says, one of the things that's very clear for us in the Bible is that we are ambassadors, first and foremost. We're not ambassadors and employees, ambassadors and husbands or wives, ambassadors and family members. We are ambassadors by being husbands, wives, employees, employers. You have a certain sphere that you can leverage, a certain group of people that you can reach, a certain talent set that still advances the gospel mission in ways that those of us who have reserved our life for some type of vocational ministry can't do. And he's saying that's living ready. And I also just want to point out uh, that you know we can even do this with side projects, parenting tasks, recreation. God's not calling you to be a spiritual insomniac. Some guys have made the argument that they want to burn out for Jesus. Well, you can rust out or you can burn out. You know, it doesn't matter. We're all going out at some point. Some people want to take maybe more intensity than others. But the truth of the matter is, if I was one of those slaves, if let's say that I was the slave owner and I left my slaves in charge, I would want them to get a good night's rest at night so that they're doing good work the next day. <laughs> I think sometimes there's this this tendency within us to grasp onto these commands and just say, that's ridiculous. I can't go 24-7, 365 for Jesus. I've got other stuff to do. And, and what you've done is you've set up a straw man. That's not even what Jesus was intending for you in the first place. What he intends for you to do is to work hard where you are for the sake of the gospel. And guess what? That includes you getting a good night's rest at night. And yes, that means you can take a vacation every once in a while. But here's the thing you won't be able to escape no matter how much you try to argue with me or these scriptures. That is that Jesus entrusts responsibility to you for the sake of the gospel. You can't get around it. It's not just the pastor. It is all of us. This is what we do. This is how we will be ready. We are ready by waiting. And we wait by working. And we work by witnessing. That is the truth of this passage. So this isn't just us going on with business as usual. There's nothing about this parable that gives us a pass to keep working our normal jobs, pursuing the American dream. What we're doing is we're pursuing the Great Commission. And we do that through our jobs. And we do that through our responsibilities. And I want you to know that there is a measure of intensity with this, though. There's a holy striving. This whole analogy about the night watches. Doing, being faithful in the most difficult times still, like, just, it prods us forward a little bit in case you're ever tempted to be apathetic. An understanding of eminence always increases our effort. Just think about a pop quiz. You remember those? Teacher in it, well, maybe you didn't give a rip about your grades. This isn't a good analogy for you. But for those of you who did care, for those of you who did have parents who would discipline you, like mine, uh, because of certain grades that you would get on a report card, pop quizzes mattered. <laughs> and I hated them. Because you always have to be ready for the stinking pop quiz. Some of you know what it's like to have to always be ready for a safety inspection, to always be ready for the financial audit. All these things are nothing more than motivations for continued excellence in a given field. And Jesus is giving us that same level of motivation here in this passage. The awareness that it could be today stimulates excellence and efficiency in our labor for the Lord. That's why he has said, by the way, already three times in the Olivet Discourse, this same verb, be ready, be on the lookout, stay awake. 
Four times in this text, he gives us the same principle. Be alert, be prepared. That's what all this teaching on the return of Christ should lead us to do. It's not just gospel responsibility. That's that's first and foremost. But there's also a gospel urgency that we can't get away from from this text. If you want a clear example of how these prompts that I've mentioned today could look in your life, I would bring to your mind the name Jonathan Edwards. You would probably know him from high school. You had to read one of his sermons entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But you may not know much more about him beyond that. There was so much more to him than that sermon. Listen to his roles and responsibilities. He was a pastor, of course, a theologian. He was a father to eight daughters and three sons. He was a missionary to the Housatonic Indians, a revivalist, a philosopher, the former president of what is now known as Princeton University, and an accomplished scientist. I'd say he's pretty busy. All in all, many have argued that he was probably the most brilliant mind ever produced on American soil. Atheist, agnostic, and Christian-educated alike would agree with that statement. He was a busy guy. But even more than these things, he was known as a godly man who strived, and I love this about him, for practical piety. As early as the age of 19, Edwards was consumed with the idea of living a life dedicated to God. So he began the practice that was pretty popular of the Puritans, the generation before him, of writing resolutions. You know, you do resolutions like at New Year's and they last three weeks. So he did these at 19 and they lasted him his life. Eventually the list would grow to 70. But in one of his earlier resolutions... I think we have something that could actually very practically serve us as we look ahead to our upcoming week, month, life. And I want to give it to you by giving you his preface, and then I'm going to jump down to Resolution 19. This is the one I want you to be aware of. His his preface is extremely important. Preface. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. 19. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. And he would read over this list of resolutions every week, asking himself, have I lived this week in a way that I'd be happy for Jesus to return within the hour? You see his commitment? It's simply to live ready. It's it's a daily commitment to live ready for the return of Jesus. One that's regularly reviewed. Now let's make it practical for a moment. If you knew that Jesus was coming back in the next hour, just as Edwards had wrote, what would you do differently? Let's expand that. The next day. The next week. The next month. And the next year. 
Whatever comes to mind as you think through these questions may very well be what Jesus has in mind for you today in this message. This is where the Holy Spirit does His work. Is it repentance and faith? Is it a sin to be forsaken? Is it an obligation to be accepted? Is it a relationship to be restored? You know what, for some of us that... Maybe, you don't have to do this, but maybe the most practical way we could walk away from a message like this is just to simply write a sticky note with live ready on it and stick it on our mirror and just see how it changes our week. Maybe a recurring reminder in our phone every couple weeks saying, it could be today. I don't know. Here's what I do know, though. Right now, right here, as we look to our time of closing prayer, as we prepare for communion, God intends for each of us to embrace our ignorance of the last day, to accept the responsibility that He's given us till then, and to live ready for His return.